You're listening to the Country Chat Podcast with your host, Dom. Subscribe, give a five-star rating, and follow us on Twitter at country underscore chat. And stay up to date. Hi there, you listen to the Good Chef Podcast with me, Dom. Today I'm going back over stateside and I'm speaking to a fantastic artist who's part of the Winter Club. His name is Christian Montgomery. Hi, Christian. Hey, hey. How are you doing? I'm good. It's bright and early here in Boston. I mean, it's, it's, I, feel, I feel really bad because we've been trying to organise this chat now for months upon months and the whole like COVID lockdown and me going back to work and obviously yourself working and everything. Mm-hmm. It's just been like timings has just been so off and it's like, okay, then when's, what's the earliest time that you can get up? And it's now 8am for you. I feel really bad. Nah, it's okay. It's, it's all right. I wake up early anyway. <laughs> what, what do you do for work? Um, <clears throat> I have two jobs. I work in construction and I'm also a commercial fisherman. So uh, I spend a lot of time out at sea and, uh, and then, uh, when I can, I build houses and, you know, so I'm always outside. <laughs> a bit of a mixture then. Yeah, a bit. I feed people and I put a roof over their heads. You literally do like the ultimate, like man type jobs for everybody's providing <laughs> and providing shelter and, mm-hmm. and not, not, to say that, <laughs> not to say that women can't do that as well you know women can do just as much as men i'll just get that in there now before i get killed <laughs> when you're at sea then do you find that's like a great time or a great period of time that you can sit down and write songs or come up with ideas for songs yeah my this this current record prince of poverty was um a lot of it was inspired whilst I was uh, 100 miles offshore. Um, it's very peaceful um, and can also be kind of, uh, you know, it can be dangerous at times too. That's inspiring. Um, being able to laugh in the face of death, I guess, is uh, is always good fodder for songwriting. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's also very peaceful and very... Uh, a cool place to meditate out there and just kind of take it all in and it's it's especially in these times where we're all socially isolating it's uh um you know being that far out in the ocean is always kind of uh you know i've been doing that already so this is uh you know it's old hat to me so obviously you're based in boston massachusetts i presume the fishing goes out into the atlantic yeah yeah what, ki- what kind of stuff do you fish oh uh, codfish, haddock, wolffish, monkfish, uh, everything. Uh, that Anything that we can drag off the bottom. Does that go to like the restaurants or is that to like local towns? Or is- yeah, it's all, it's all going out to the local restaurants, all to the, you know, it pretty much uh, just Cape Cod. Yeah. I mean, here in the UK, we've got, um, we've got a sea next to us. I'm based on like the east side of the UK. And we mm-hmm. have the North Sea separating us and like mainland Europe. So we get a lot of like cod and salmon and all that kind of stuff up and down that coast. And that yeah. goes to, we've got, um, you probably know, but obviously the UK is kind of renowned for its fish and chips. Oh yeah. We send a lot of, we send a lot of uh, fish over to, uh, to not, not from my boat, but um, a lot of, a lot of ships do send uh, fish over to the UK specifically for fish and chips. So good. I mean, Atlantic fish is just so great. I mean, how, what 
reading like your Spotify profile, you've got like the little description at the bottom where you've you've mentioned that you've had a difficult upbringing. Now, I'll go into that in a bit more detail in a bit later. But what kind of led you to go into like the construction and the fishing side? Um, well, my father was a fisherman and uh, my mother's father, my grandfather was a tradesman. So I was always surrounded by it. And um, I mean, I'm six foot two, 230 pounds. It's a it's kind of uh, when you're built with a frame like that, that's the kind of work that you get thrown into. Yeah. But uh, it's also, I mean, I find it rewarding in its simplicity that it's doing something good. Um, I, uh, and as we get further into chatting, you'll, you'll, you might notice that I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder when it comes to people who um, sit behind desks and offices uh, and, uh, and make 10 times as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that. I've got a chip on my shoulder about that as well. Yeah, it's, uh, um, I, you know, I still chop my own wood for my fire. I, I still fix my own car when it breaks. Um, I do all the things that those people can't do and who they hire us to do it and expect us to do it for, for, for cheap money when they're charging us, you know, our life savings for the work that they do. So exactly. Um, so it's uh it's I've, I gravitated to that kind of work because I just think it's honorable. I think it's uh, when a man can build something with his own hands, it it's an honorable thing. I mean, it's uh you know uh, it drives me nuts that uh, <clears throat> now we hear a lot about pharaohs, but we never hear about the people who built the pyramids. So it's exactly uh, that that it's that important. there sums it up perfectly. I mean, I work in engineering as well. I build prosthetics, um, so it's not to the kind of level that you do in terms of like construction or even going out to see fishing. And but you know, it's still I've always been the one that you know you get out what you put in, and I'll always put in a lot of effort, and I'll always be on pennies in comparison to those who are right at the top and kind of like yeah. I don't want to say slave driving because they'll be listening to this now saying we don't slave drive you but you know it's, it's still the same thing you know they we do a lot of the graft just so other people can benefit and mm-hmm. like you say you know regarding like the blue collar stuff there's you you won't you won't know about this part of the UK but there is a massive north south divide and yeah. up here in the north we tend to get rained on quite a lot by those who live down south because they earn a lot more money because that's where everything gravitates to. I use quote, quote, marks there. And yeah. it's, it's, it's really unfair. And, you know, the amount of effort that we put in, particularly in, say, even like the 70s and 80s during like the mining periods before the uh, prime minister in the 80s, Maggie Thatcher, kind of closed everything down, which we're all bitter about. And, you know, we, the poor people... Us who live on the breadline, who you know barely make a paycheck last month to month, struggle, and it's us that has to struggle. Everyone else seems to be like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't see a problem with this lockdown, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I've got, like I said, I've got a chip as well. Well, I've always uh, my my grandfather had a great saying that if you don't want Bolsheviks, you have to reduce the bourgeoisie. I mean, it's uh, yeah, you know, it's, it says uh, it all, really. Yeah. <laughs> So obviously mentioned about like the Spotify bio there. What you mentioned that you've grown up poor and is that just 
kind of like the circumstances from growing up? I mean, you're from originally Denmark. Yeah, well, my my dad is from Denmark. Um, my mom's from the States. Um, <clears throat> my mother's family came over from um, Wigtonshire, Scotland. And my parents met when my mother was in university. And uh, my father was a fisherman. Um, and I, the, the last memory I had of him was he, my mother had asked him for a divorce and he had knocked her out with one punch. And um, I remember, you know, for, you know, being four years old, that was a, you know, something that just stuck in my head. And I moved in with, I moved in with my grandparents and they were, my grandfather was a tradesman and my grandmother was a uh, school teacher. And we lived in a very wealthy, very wealthy town, but we were very poor. Um, and, uh, I mean, we, we got by, um, you know, we, we never went without food, but I, I was not able to afford the luxuries that other people had. Um, and when my musical ability was recognized by the pastor of my church, who was a professional tenor and uh, sang opera, um, he overheard me singing and pulled me aside to give me lessons. I realized what an uphill battle it was competing with the children of privilege to be able to get a seat at the table as far as, um, um, you know, uh, being able to uh, uh, further my career. Um, I, I, so uh, I had to work twice as hard and, uh, of course, uh, you know, was not uh, afforded the best instruments or anything like that. So I would build my own. And, yeah. uh, but um it was a uh, it was a house that was full of love, um, but we were, um, but and we were happy. Um, but uh, you know, we we struggled. Well, that's it. That's it exactly. I mean, being I, my family's never been rich. I mean, we've lived in a big house, but it's a rented house. You know, it's people look at it and think, "Oh, they they must be rich." We're not. And, you know, each Christmas, everybody else would be getting... I mean, I'm only 28, so I'm relatively young. And growing up in, like, the 90s and early 2000s, everybody else would get, like, the latest technology and everyone's coming home to, like, laptops and computers and stuff. Up until I was, like, 16, 17 years old, I was going to the local school, uh, local library, which was about three, four, five miles away from where I lived, on a bike, just to get homework done. And, you know, it's that kind of, I, I, I struggled at school. I mean, I was fantastic in lessons, but actually doing like exam work and understanding to the same level that other people could do because they could just search things at home was completely different. And you could see the difference between like myself and those who had money and was brought up in a house where they could just get anything they want. And, you know, you, it gave me personally an appreciation for the amount of hard work that you have to do to get anywhere really in life. It's not just given to you. No, not to us. <laughs> yeah. Do you find that growing up in that kind of situation, you know, with your grandparents and then basically fight, fighting to survive really is kind of giving you a completely different outlook into life? It, it has. It's, uh, um, I, I tell my, wife all the time that I plan on finishing this life. Um, you know, and she, uh, she'll ask me, you know, she's asked me what I meant uh, and I said, you know, I'm, 
I am very unsure as to where it's going to go, how it's going to turn out. Um, but I'm going to finish it because there's got to be some kind of reason why I've gone through everything that I've experienced. I mean, um, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, like I, I haven't been so poor that I could not, um, go on the adventures I wanted to go on. I mean, I've traveled, uh, I was in Nicaragua. Um, I was, uh, I have some cool pictures on my Facebook page of me with dueling AK 47 sitting on a park bench in the middle of Managua after, uh, after some, um, a bit of an uprising. And, uh, no, I was, I played at Bianca Jagger's, uh, studio. Um, uh, you know, Mick's first wife was from, uh, Nicaragua and I did some recording there and, uh, I've been able to go on adventures. I mean, my, my old bass player, um, that's where his family was from. And I went to perform, um, there and, um, you know, got to have, uh, martinis with Nicholas Cage over in, um, in Costa Rica next door. Um, you know. wait, 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 I'm going to jump on that for a second. What, how, who, what, 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 how did that all work out? How did that plan out? <laughs> uh, he has a house. He has a house in Costa Rica and, uh, he was walking down the beach and he saw me playing guitar with a couple of guys that I had met down there. And, yeah. um, you know, he just, do you guys want to come back for martinis? And we said, sure. And, <laughs> um, I mean, it was, uh, know in central america you don't often hear the word martini i mean it's mostly (laughs) tequila and rum and uh so we we were like wow okay well we could go have some sophisticated drinks yeah and um so we hung out you know at his pad for a little while and and then moved on and you know nice enough guy uh very cool liked the music and uh you know we talked a little bit about um you know different artists and you know different albums we were listening to and um but uh, no, uh, I hung out and you know recorded uh, like three or four songs at Bianca's studio there, and then uh, um, I spent a cup about a month in in Managua, and um, and then went home, and you know it was a lot of fun, and you know my my buddy had mentioned that at that time he said you know he goes you you make Hemingway look like a Cub Scout with the things that you do, <laughs> and. Uh, well, that, like, yeah. that, that's a great lyric, is that? Yeah, you know. That is, that's crazy. That, I mean, for somebody, you know, that's, that's had a difficult upbringing, you know, there's no denying that at all. You know, we, it's amazing how we can make, you know, simple situations a lot better. I mean, I've done it before where I've visited places, particularly around Europe, and you you just go with the flow. I mean, it's almost like the Titanic scene, you know, with Jack Dawson, you know, going around and all he needs is his notebook and pen, you know, doing drawings. Yeah. It's it's that kind of that kind of feel, you know, you don't have the weight of the world on you. You know, you just go out and mm-hmm. enjoy life for what it is. Yeah, there's uh there's something to be said for for wanting to have the experiences to wanting to immerse yourself in different cultures and, uh, um, you know, and, and I, that's what I've done. I mean, I, I've, I've 
you know, focused on the music aspect of it. I mean, I, I love, I love those, you know, Latin bossa nova grooves and, uh, you know, I've incorporated that into my music from my stay in, in Central America and, and going to Mexico. And, and then, uh, you know, my, uh, I have an older brother, a half brother from my father's first marriage, who's, um, um, a native Alaskan Indian, um, his mother was a Aleutian Island native and, uh, you know, traveling up to Alaska and, and, uh, hanging out at a reservation and, you know, seeing that culture and, and immersing myself in that. And, you know, yeah. they still, they still hunt whale and seal and, and it's, it's cool. My, my niece, uh, just got a huge, uh, Roosevelt elk that she hunted and, um, <laughs> So it's, it's kind of neat, you know, uh, coming from a Scandinavian family and, you know, my biological father was married six times. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> he was an extraordinarily handsome fisherman and he just traveled the world and would meet a beautiful woman from a wealthy family and he would exhaust them of their funds. <laughs> and, and, uh, no, so, uh, I've got a bunch of, uh, half siblings, um, scattered throughout the, uh, the world. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it, it's kind of, uh, it's neat how, you know, he, he went from culture to culture and, uh, you know, kind of left a trail for me to follow as far as family. So I've, I've been able to, uh, find everybody and, you know, it's cool to kind of find out where they came from, their cultures, you know, it's, yeah. That, that was going to be my next. That was going to be my next question. Was have you ever done like an ancestry dot com kind of thing where you've kind of tried to trace down everybody around the world? I, yeah, I have, uh, and I've found I've I've found pretty much everybody. Now on my mother's side, um, we go back to the Mayflower, and um, you know. Uh, there's a story about that too. I was in a band once that was located near where the Mayflower is docked in, um, in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And we were going to, we were, we were asking Ted Turner to try to get the funds to steal it and bring it back to England. And as a joke and say, you know, this has just been nothing but trouble and we want you to take it back. Yeah. But, uh, um, I go back. You know, English. I'm, I'm, I'm descended from, I'm descended from, um, a lot of the Mayflower uh, passengers. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Salem witch trials, but two of the yeah. women, two of the women who were hanged uh, were my ninth great grandmothers. But, oh, wow. Um, yeah. And then on my father's side, we go back to Harold, the Bluetooth, the first Christian King of Denmark. Yeah. So, oh, you know. wow. That, <laughs> that's some, that's some bloodline that. Yeah. We've got, you know, we, we've got some, some uh some scottish kings and some uh you know so we've got some pretty crazy lineage uh the funniest one that i found was um i have like a 10th great uncle um by the last name granger who was 16 he was the first teenager hanged in plymouth and um he uh he was caught um he was caught exercising with a cow in a field and um he admitted he admitted to several other uh, creatures too. I'm sure that the colonists cut him off and said, "Listen, please just stop t- 
telling us what you did to what. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he was hanged. So, I mean, you can't pick your family. Um, you got to take the good with the bad. Yeah. Um, but That's, yeah, I've, done, um, I've got into that. <laughs> that must have been um, an interesting read. Oh, the the uh, the story starts off with uh, in a time where the slightest glint of a naked ankle would send a man into a hysterics. It was like it was really well written. <laughs> oh, that, that's that's I've I've never done it myself. You know the like ancestry stuff where you've gone back in time. So I'm kind of nervous now to see what my family brings up. <laughs> Um, you, men- you mentioned earlier about the um, fishing being really dangerous and, you know, almost on like the precipice of life between when you go out to sea. Yeah. What is it that's, I mean, I can imagine what's dangerous, but what kind of, what's kind of happened with you where it's been, you've kind of thought, oh crap, you know, this, this isn't a safe situation I'm in. Um, uh, I've had a couple, uh, up here in in Massachusetts, in the last ten years, we've had a um, an increase in the great white shark population. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remembered uh, I was hearing a noise, and uh, I was up on the bow of the bow of the ship, and I there was some crazy noise coming from the back. And uh, um, I have what's called an outboard motor, you know, outboard motors on the back, and. Uh, great white shark had wedged itself in between the motor and the ship and was trying to free itself. And honestly, the the boat was almost at a 90 degree angle in the water about to capsize. And all I could think was, I know exactly what's going to happen. This shark's going to capsize the boat and uh, it's going to free itself and I'm going to be in the water and I'm going to be its lunch. And uh, what a way to go, you know, because I always tell my, I tell my wife, I'm like, you know, I, I, I would, I'd prefer to go back into the food chain than to be just buried for, you know, be useless. But, uh, I suppose it almost, it sounds like the Vikings where, you know, you used to get burnt out into sea, you know, put onto the long boats and I suppose eaten by sharks is a, uh, another way to go. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we've had some, we've had some crazy storms. We had a, uh, we had a tropical storm off the coast in August and that was, that was a tough ride home. Um, so yeah, we've had some pretty scary times. Some lightning strikes at sea have been rough, uh, frying electronics, um, you know, but uh, I haven't, I haven't gone overboard once in my life. So, you know, touch wood. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, that must be not just a daunting thing for yourself. Obviously you'd be used to the, you know, you won't be complacent, but you'll still be used to the fact that there's going to be always risks and there's always going to be dangers and, you know, every every sale or every day is a new day. And you've got to watch out for those same risks. But I bet it's daunting for your wife and family and, you know, everybody that you know, knowing that you're going out to sea and mm-hmm. much what it doesn't happen. But, you well, know, we've lost we've lost three ships this season. So, wow, I think 14, 14 souls. So it, it, it kind of puts it into perspective when you hear that. You know, when you hear that there's 14, 14 people out there that just haven't come back to their families, and it's sad. Mm-hmm. Yep. All for a bit of cod. Yeah. <laughs> Again, us UK. It's us English wanting our fish. 
Well, they and but up in England, the water is a lot colder. Um, yeah. You no, know, Denmark is a lot, lot colder. I experienced that firsthand. <laughs> what happened with that? Oh God. Um, my cousin Sarah had gone through a terrible divorce, and I was in Roskilde, where my family is originally from, by the cathedral, and there is. Um, boat called the Osberg. It's a Swedish uh, replica of a Viking longboat. Yeah. And for for a hundred American dollars, you can take the boat from Denmark to Sweden and back across the fjord. And um, the uh, gentleman who was uh, running the uh, what are the payment and everything um, yeah. was an Amer- was an American, and I spoke to him in Danish. And asked him if I could, if I had time to go get some gifts at the gift shop. And, you know, he just said, yeah. (laughs) When I came back, the boat was 20 yards offshore and I was pissed. And um, I started yelling at him in English and he was like, listen, why don't you just swim? So I stripped down, I stripped down to my skivvies and I jumped into the water and it was like glass, you know, broken glass all over my body. It hurt so bad. But I swam out to the boat and um, the uh, the guy, the captain or whatever, the man who was running it um, threw a lasso over the side and you walk yourself up onto the boat. And um, he asked me if I wanted to dry my skivvies on the mast. You know, it was all just men on the boat. So I said, sure. You know, they'll be dry by the time we get back. And I sat down next to a gentleman and he made a joke um, saying, oh, it's very cold. And I said, well, yeah, I'm still bigger than you. And, uh, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> and, and then, you know, proceeded to sail completely naked from Denmark to Sweden and back. And then that was that. And, you know, my family says I'm crazy. And it was just uh, wanted to prove a point to a. Uh, to a uh, American intern that, uh, you know, you should never dare a Dane to do anything because we will. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's, oh, I can't, oh, just the thought of that cold water just, yeah, that, that, that's funny how you say you're beginning in that. <laughs> I love it. Oh, if only people here had that kind of humour as well. They'd just be like, huh? <laughs> Going into, like, your previous album then the gravel church so in your like bio everything all your songs they're actually written from real life experiences or kind of feelings that you've been through those kind of emotions those raw emotions which one out of the gravel church would you say has hit you when you was writing the hardest you know the one that was really really took you back and kind of brought a tear to the eye kind of thing. I, I wrote a song called Razor Wire Heart, which uh, um, I did uh, six months in prison in the States. Uh, I mean, my family says I was a political prisoner, but um, I had a disagreement with a barrister um, during my divorce and uh, voiced my opinion and they threw me in prison. And uh, um you know, it was all regarding, you know, I wanted to remain a father and, you know, divorces are, you know, especially in the United States, they're, um, they're pretty profitable for the government. So mm-hmm. um, I fought as hard as I could. And um, 
you know, came up on the losing end and uh, shared a couple of choice words with a barrister. And, and he, uh, you know, he threw me in prison. And I wrote this song while I was in prison for, for my kids, um, you know, for my sons. And, uh, you know, it was a, an apology, but also a uh, reaffirmation that what I said to this man was, you know, truthful and was, you know, it wasn't threatening or anything like that. It was just, uh, you know, I believe that sometimes a man is supposed to say what he has to say, regardless of the consequences, um, you know, to, to remain honest and to keep his integrity and honor. And so I did. And, uh, that was a very difficult song to write. Um, you know, it, uh, was trying to tell the kids, this isn't who I am. This isn't going to describe me for the rest of my life. And I'm going to get over this and, and I'm going to come out shining on the other end. And yeah, but it was a, it was a vif- very difficult song to write. Um, it was the first time I've ever written a song on paper. Um, I've always had a guitar in front of me and, uh, or a piano. Um, and, uh, this, I had to, it was all in my head, um, and had to put pen to paper and it came out pretty good. Yeah. When, when we got into the studio, my producer's name is Joe Clapp and he, uh, is a super talented guy. Um, and he kept saying, Christian, I'm so sorry you had to go through this, but these songs are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like, uh, you, you had to go through what you went through in order to produce this kind of music. And, uh, so, you know, a couple of different, you know, mag, you know, entertainment magazines have all said that too, that, you know, in order to write these kind of lyrics, you have to have lived it. So, yeah, you know, it, it, it was, it was very gratifying when it was done. Well, that's it. I mean, you sent me a link to sonicbids.com, which is basically it pull, it accumulates everything for the band and yeah. basically everything that you've done. And you can read like different press um, pieces about it and everything screams that what you do is just true from the heart. Well, here's, here's one already, you know, about Razor Wire Heart. You know, only someone who's lived through this experience could write lyrics like this, and that's from the alternative mixtapes. You know, yeah. it, it's so true. And, I mean, I can understand how people can write from a perspective of somebody else if they haven't lived through it but you don't get that same raw emotion. You don't get that same feel through the lyrics without yeah. going through it. But it's so, it's disgusting though as well, the fact that you, you've been incarcerated because of something that we naturally have as humans that, you know, right to speak out if you, if, if something's not right, if, if something genuinely isn't right, you you can't just shut up and put up, you know, it's, that, yeah. that that's, that's, Barristers and lawyers and solicitors and you know they're there to help the people. You know, it's part of what they do. And just because you've said something that is against what they think, you know, it's just and they just throw down the book. It's just wrong. Yeah, oh. it was. <laughs> well, it was. Uh, it was funny when I when I walked into prison. Uh, one of the first guys I ran into was a uh, uh, high school friend that I played hockey with. <laughs> what's the chance yeah and uh he uh, he was one of the officers uh one of the guards and he said what are you doing here and i said uh you know i married the wrong girl <laughs> and he uh and he was like yeah he, he he said there's a couple of guys in here who are in the same situation as you 
Um, there's there's quite a few inmates who are are basically here because they wanted to be dads, and the state of Massachusetts um, decided that it was in their best interest to uh, to uh, make money off of them instead of letting them be fathers. But um, yeah, it's a very it's a very profitable business. Um, you know, divorces and whatnot here in the U.S. and uh, um, you know, especially with our the current administration that's on its way out. Um, I've, I've, you know, having family who lived through the occupation in the forties, um, you know, it's, it's very similar. It's scary. It's, uh, the, the level of corruption here is it's out of control. I mean, the, every, it, the government's bought and paid for by the, the businesses and, uh, the common man really doesn't have much of a say anymore. And when they try to speak up there, they, they, they go missing. So yeah, it's, uh, it's spooky here in the States. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, part of the Constitution is the freedom of speech, you know, the, the ability to speak up against the government, uh, you know, without fear of persecution. And, you know, it just seems like that just isn't the case at times. No, no it's not here. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a sad state of affairs. It's a, it's a sad, sad time to be alive in this kind of political climate as well. In all mm-hmm. aspects. Yeah. Well, is it any better in Britain? Is it? <laughs> no. is, uh, British politics is quite farcical at the moment. It's, it's, yeah. not, be, it's not been right since... I can't even remember a time where it's not the same argument, just twisted in a different way. It's always the same things people complain about. It's always the same arguments that have happened 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. We we have basically two big parties here. We have the Conservatives, uh, which are the Tories, and we have Labour, which is supposed to be the working man's party. Yeah. But we... Talking about like what we were talking about earlier, about the fact that we've been poor and the fact there's that north-south divide... It still happens, irregardless of which party you support. And mm-hmm. we've just gone through this thing called Brexit, yeah, where yeah. Britain's now no longer part of the EU. So, I mean, I'll, I try and keep my political views, but you know, as unbiased as I can do, because I like to mm-hmm. hear all sides of the story. You know, when, when especially when we cast our votes and stuff, I'll always listen to every single thing. You know, I won't. I'll like blank out the facts of the you know previous allegiances, whether I voted Labour or whether I voted Tory or whether I voted Lib Dems. That's another. That's like the that's like the Liberals, Lib Dems. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's a scary time. I mean, no matter what people do, it'll either won't be good enough, or it generally will be a crap decision made by the government. And this whole like COVID period has just been a massive farce with how things are being done. I mean, we're going mm-hmm. through this new strain at the moment here, where it's we're going, into, we're in our third lockdown now, our third complete lockdown, where yeah. it's just spiral. It's the pandemic at the moment now is worse than what it was last year, back in March, and there's more people dying now, you know, per hundred thousand people than what there was a year ago, and it's it's scary. It's, I have, I personally have no trust in anyone right now in government. Yeah, yeah. But that that's the UK for you. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I when I was when I was in school, we um we had a community radio, and 
when I first started in radio, it was a community show and it was a politics show. And as a 15, 16 year old lad, I knew a bit about politics, but my friends, they knew a lot more because they were part of certain parties. And I used to just get them ranting all the time about politics. It was, it was interesting to listen to. I, can't, I hate to listen back to it now. Yeah. But that, that's, that's, that's enough about me. I'm, I'm here for you. I'm, we want to talk about your music. <laughs> well, I, I, got to meet, I got to meet the uh, current U.S. president back in the late 90s. Oh, yeah? How, in how, New York. What happened there? Um, it, was, uh, it was outside of um, Howard Stern. You know who he is? Yes, uh, radio presenter on... Sirius. Yeah, yeah uh, Sirius. Yeah. He's on serious now. He used to be on um, WBCN in Boston late nights, and uh, yeah. I was outside. I was out that outside the studio, and he was the president was a guest on the show, and I, you know, got to meet him briefly, and was unimpressed. I mean, the man was a a slob, um, <laughs> sweating like a pig, um, overweight, and um, but yet indifferent to the world around him. It was all about him, and uh, yeah. Um, a narcissist. You know, but he he had this swagger like he could get any woman in the world he wanted and i was just kind of i just kind of chuckled and i was like oh my gosh like this poor guy yeah <laughs> no, i mean there's still, there's still some things that money can't buy <laughs> yeah i mean obviously obviously he's the butt of many a joke at the moment particularly his um choice of tan mm. and but I mean, you know, he's he certainly made money for himself, you know, whether it's legit money or not, you know, that's always another argument. But it's, there's certain things that people should have the right to do and certain things that people shouldn't have to do. And he, in my opinion, he shouldn't have gone for the office. I'm surprised he got in. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I try and keep my views to myself, but, you know, I just... At first, it was like, okay, then, you know, there's, a, there's this guy, you know, there's this business guy who says he's going to do X, Y, Z. He's already started doing X, Y, Z. We'll see how it turns out. And then as each day or month or week passed, it was like, yeah. Mm. <laughs> we made a mistake. <laughs> we made a mistake. Yeah. Um, be interesting to see how the next, what, four years pan out, though, under the new presidency. I mean, his inauguration's coming up very, very soon as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, on Wednesday. I've, have you seen the um, the news regarding what they've done with the Capitol and like around Capitol building? Well, I, I have a friend who uh, was a drummer in one of my bands who um, became a Capitol police officer. And uh, he had said that uh, it was just crazy. Um, he said the during the uh, during the assault on the Capitol, he told me he got in some really good stick time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, but, uh, he says it's crazy. He was like, he said he couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, he couldn't believe it. He said that the people that were marching on the Capitol, it was like, um, he's, he described it as the special Olympics. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with that. He said, he said it, Paralympics. It, yes. Yeah. He was, he said it was just all of these people who were completely broken, um, who weren't functioning the way humans were supposed to function anymore. Um, yeah. He said there was a lot of cousin, cousin uncles, um, you know, a lot of inbred, yeah. you know, people from the South, but uh, it's, it's 
hopefully the inauguration will go off without a hitch and everything will be fine and we can move on. <laughs> well, when there was the inauguration for uh, President Trump, it was there was one. There's a one that people talking about, you know, how taking bets on how long it would take for like an assassination or the impeachment or you know how long how long would he be in presidency for? And I'm, I'm sure I've read somewhere that they were expecting, you know, obviously a higher security detail, but I'm sure there's a bigger security detail now. Oh, yeah. Just the event, you know, just in case that he does what he did last time. But obviously, he's not on Twitter or social media anymore. Right. Now, he, um, I, it's been great. We, we've almost, it almost seems like we're back to, back to normal. Um, he, uh, <laughs> we don't hear, we don't hear from him. It's been great. Uh, so I, I don't, I mean, he tried to make his presence on YouTube and then they shut him down. Um, <laughs> And uh, it, it seems like we're we're kind of like rid of him already. So I'm I couldn't be happier. And if we if we impeach him a second time and convict him, um, he can never run for office again. And that's the hope. <laughs> that's the main thing. We'll go back to music then. We'll go back to Gravel Church and track five. I can't say this word. I presume it's a Danish word. Yeah, I'm not going to try again. <laughs> I'm just going to make a fool of myself. <laughs> why, um, why, what, what, why, why, why did you decide to go with the Danish? What does it mean in English? I'll start with then. Heart, heart builder. Heart builder. Yeah. How can you decide to go with the Danish saying for it? Um... <clears throat> It had, when I wrote it, it, it had this very European vibe. Um, it, it was, to me, you know, I, it was like that old man playing the accordion with the monkey dancing, you know, to try to get Krona, you know, on the side of the road somewhere at a cafe, you know, or even like a, an Italian cafe or French or Italian cafe where, you know, someone's playing an accordion. Um, yeah. And the song, um, you know, my, my father had died of a heart attack and um, he was very young. Uh, he was only 54. And I wrote it about, you know, wishing, uh, wishing there was more time, wishing that, you know, uh, um, wishing that his heart was healthier. Um and I, I, you know, I wanted to kind of romanticize it a little bit. And, uh, um, cause my, my memories of him were not positive. So I wanted to try to find something beautiful in it. And so it was almost written as an apology from him yeah. to me. Oh. So, yeah. That, that's, that, that's really emotional. That's. Hmm. That, that, that is, you know, I can totally see where you're coming from, you know, in terms of like that feel for the song. And, you know, obviously not knowing the actual title of the uh, song, it was like, oh, this, 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 you know, with the rhythm and it certainly follows on from previous songs. You know, it, the way the album works, it flows 
And, you know, it's, it is a very, not a solemn album, but there's a lot of deep emotion. Yeah, yeah. And it certainly flows throughout. And now that I know what, I'm not, I'm not going to say it again, but now that I know what that word means, yeah, it makes so much more sense. Mm-hmm. Out I of, mean, it was, come. It, it's a situation where, you know, uh, when someone passes on and there's still unanswered questions and yeah, the need for reconciliation, um, you know, I, I took the liberty to write it for him and, um, you know, hoping that there was some kind of divine intervention that maybe they were his words more than mine. And, and, you know, um, I, 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 regardless of what I believe in, um, I, I choose to think that, they were his words instead of mine. So, yeah. Oh, that's no, that's beautiful. That is a beautiful take on things. Hmm. Out of all the songs, then obviously we've had the one that's caused a lot more emotion with Reservoir Heart. Which hmm. one's been the one that was the easiest to write and sing? Oh, um, Five Horses was. Uh, was very easy. Uh, the, the story behind that was I, I had written a verse and a chorus and put it up on YouTube. Um, because I, I write quick, um, songs come very quick ideas, you know, uh, uh, the guitar parts are phrases, um, plays on words. Um, so I try to document everything by throwing these ideas up on YouTube and my, my friend Tim who plays bass, um, uh, had heard that. And, uh, I guess there was some dinner conversation regarding writing a song about the environment at his house. And he had said, Christian, you know, my wife had said, you should write, you know, something about what's going on with climate change and all this other stuff. And I said, Tim, you know, I've already got this verse and a chorus that's very, you know, much to do about that. And, uh, so we finished it. He wrote this great bass line and um, my producer, Joe, played guitar on it. And we found some old Native American um, recordings of uh, Sioux Indian uh, war dance. Yeah. And the song, you know, the song was written prior to the pandemic, but it was a warning. It was supposed to be a, a, a song that was, uh, you know, warning everybody about what was to come you know i i've i've seen changes um you know i'm an you know not just being a commercial fisherman but i mean i i also hunt uh white-tailed deer in the forest in new england and um i've seen how the habitats changed the populations have changed um you know the water has certainly become more acidic off the coast of massachusetts Um, um we have species living here that um you know are not native native to the waters anymore um the the populations of different um fish have changed Um, i have a very good friend who's a marine biologist up in maine and he did a research product project on the sustainability of the haddock population and found that there is not enough genetic material to continue a healthy population anymore the fish are so you know 
reliant on a small amount of genetics now. Yeah. That, that the diversity isn't there to continue it in a healthy way. Um, so the, this song was, you know, it was all about the pandemic. Um, it was kind of, uh, you know, uh, Nostradamus esque in a way, you know, yeah. uh, who, you know, it just so happened that we wrote it and then boom, the plague hits. So <laughs> it kind yeah. of fits, it kind of fits in so well with everything. Yeah. And that, that was the first single we, we released and, uh, you know, the, the rock shows up here in Boston, um, picked it up and, you know, we were a song of the week or, you know, on a couple of the bigger radio stations and, um, it kind of took off and people, people gravitated towards it because it was about what's happening. So, yeah, uh, worked out pretty good. Um, I am a huge Peter Gabriel fan. Um, I just got to see him and Sting play four years ago at the Rock, Paper, Scissors tour. Oh, yeah. And, oh, God, it was that was one of the coolest concerts I've ever seen. Um, they did their own music and then they did each other's music. And then they did a couple of duets together. Um, but one of the coolest things I've ever seen was uh, Peter Gabriel sang Sting's Englishman in New York. And he yeah. came out, he came out strutting like uh, it was He's got such a, a great personality and uh, stage presence. And, um, you know, he was, uh, you know, he kept making comments about how him and Sting were the same age, but, you know, he doesn't have the same body as Sting. And uh, yeah. so you know, hasn't stayed in quite as good a shape. <laughs> but when, when you perform them, do you like to kind of not imitate, but kind of jump off the passions of others like Peter Gabriel and Sting? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I think I definitely do. I try, I, I try to do my own thing, but uh, it's really hard not to. I mean, um, I mean, you know, as far as, you know, I'm, I, I play a lot of country music, but as far as influences are concerned, you know, I am, uh, I am very 1970s England influenced, um, you know, uh, between Bowie and Gabriel, um, Jagger, yeah. you know, all of those people who are just larger than life, um, you know, yeah. uh, it's, it's hard, it's hard not to have a little bit of, that kind of swagger when they're your influences. Well, you can you can hear those influences through just even like the guitar solos and that twanginess. I mean, I'm sure I read somewhere um, when obviously I like to do a bit of research, and I'm sure I read somewhere that you know you've got that rocky feel, that rock and roll feel um, with the guitars, and there is particularly like Five Horses. Even the first few few songs is just so much guitar it's brilliant to hear but you can hear those influences of like the rolling stones and the who and mm-hmm. you know that heavy, that not heaviness but that kind of rhythmic guitar solo-esque music yeah yeah it's, it's, it's yeah. i mean that's that's the guitars that i grew up on i mean um no and the the vocal the vocals too like like Daltrey's, you know, that man could hang on a note for days and, uh, you know, powerful voice that, uh, um, you know, him, Freddie, Mer- I mean, Freddie Mercury, I would have to say is probably as far as vocalists are concerned would be my Mecca. Um, 
I mean, yeah. that guy, the way he could layer and uh, the power behind him, uh, you know, was, uh, was amazing. Have you seen, have you seen the new, well, not new film, but Bohemian Rhapsody, the uh, film oh, yeah. depicting his life? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Remy Malik, he did a fantastic job, you know, recreating yeah. the, the tones and the mannerisms that Freddie Mercury did. I mean, even just by the teeth alone, obviously his teeth are iconic. Uh, because oh, yeah. of the amount of space in his mouth, he could get those certain certain yeah. sustained notes that we can't do. Right, right. I mean, it was uh, it was there were a couple of, of moments in that movie where I got very teary eyed, and I mean, we lo- we lost we lost him way too soon. I mean, oh yeah, um, just everything about him was so full of life and um you know he you know everything that it it seemed as though he was going to leave no stern no stone unturned i mean he was going to do it all um you know that musically sexually you know spiritually he was he was gonna have it all you know and uh lived his life to the fullest yes it was a shame that he lost it you know lost that life so soon because I think he would have had so much more music. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I know there was a bit of a ructions between the band towards the latter end, um, obviously, because Freddie is a larger-than-life character. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you've to be a front man, you know, particularly the band, you'll know this. You know, you've got to have that personality where you're in front of everybody because you've got to be entertaining. You've got to have that that personality, that charisma to get the crowd going and Freddie and yourself have that. Yeah. It's a, uh, I mean, especially nowadays, I mean, we want to connect. We want, I mean, you, you, I mean, uh, there's some artists that, I mean, you know, like, like Taylor Swift, I cannot connect with Taylor Swift, no matter how hard I try. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but there are, you know, you know, Chris Cornell from, you know, Soundgarden. Yeah. Um, I, I could connect all day long. I mean, I, uh, the, the man was just a prolific songwriter. Um, worst body odor of any person I've ever met. <laughs> in my life. Um, I, he jumped into the stage and we carried him and I was like, Holy shit. Oh my God. Like passed him on as fast as I could to the guy. Behind me. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there, you know, Luke, you know, David Bowie. Um, I, I bought Black Star the day that it came out, and uh, I mean that guy, um, that last record that he did, um, you know, that brought me to tears. I uh, mean, I, I, it was just beautiful. Everything about it, was perfect. Um, and uh, you know, those are the, those are the the records that on my deathbed I'll have in my. <laughs> my earphones you know so have the vinyls laid over your body yeah oh that'd be perfect <laughs> <laughs> or even better yet you know just have a casket that's made completely of vinyls and vinyl covers that have been like hard resin together and really make a unique <laughs> my, my, son, my son would say that that's a sacrilege he would burn in good vinyl he would he would not have it he uh <laughs> He's an avid collector of uh, of vinyl, and 
No, he'll tell you anyway. He has strict instructions, you know, uh, to push the boat out to sea and to shoot the fiery arrow at it. And he, uh, he knows <laughs> how I want to go out. Do you, have, do you have it all written down in like, this is what I want? I do. Make I sure do. you I checklist do. it. Yeah. I said, you know, you put me on my longboat and, you know, shoot the fiery arrow. That's how I, I want to go out in uh, Roskilde Cathedral, at a, you know, a huge procession and then, you know, burial at sea. That, as morbid as it is, though, that's it's really entertaining way to go because it's so different and unique. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Talk about leaving a lasting impression. <laughs> okay, so we've got into the gravel church. Now, I think it, I think it's time to go into Prince of Poverty. Yeah. So we've had the discussions with gravel church on the what's happened and how we've gone into writing it. How have you gone into writing Prince of Poverty? Is this a continuation of further life experiences or? Oh, it, it is. It's a Prince of Poverty. The, the whole concept of it was moving forward, was, uh, was um, moving on from the gravel church, putting that record behind me. And this was, this is the record that uh, um, I wanted to make to say, all right, everything's behind me, but this is what I'm giving you now. This is, this is the future. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there's, there's still some songs on there that are very, uh, um, you know, very much about life experiences. Um, you know, I'll find my way home is about my younger years and my teens stumbling out of pubs and, uh, the South yeah. of Boston, um, in the, uh, Irish, Irish section of Boston. And, uh, um, where I lived for quite a while. Um, Particularly the last song as well, Working Hands. Oh, Working working Hands was all about that um, shoving, shoving my life in the face of those wealthy... Yeah. <laughs> uh, Blue collar. People. Um, and I, I always wanted to have a song with a dueling guitar and banjo solo. Yeah. And um, it just all worked out perfectly. Um, and uh, I'm, you know, the lyrics are very funny. It's about how no matter how, um, no matter how rich someone is, you know, their, uh, their wife is always looking at the pool guy or the gardener, um, you know, uh, yeah, that, you know, just a bit of a entertainment. Right. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to get a laugh, but, uh, you know, Prince of Poverty was just all about how when I was younger, I was always the the musician in the group who couldn't afford the guitar or couldn't afford the recording time. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it got shoved in my face a lot. Um, you know, in bands I was in when I was younger, uh, I would write songs and we would record them and uh, I would lose all ownership of the song because I couldn't contribute to the finished product. So, yeah they would get registered under somebody else's name. I mean, you know, my drummer used to get all the songwriting credit. Um, and, uh, I mean, I don't, he, he, he couldn't play guitar for more than a couple seconds without someone telling them to, to turn it off. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so it was, uh, it was all about, uh, you know, that I was always the the poor guy. And now, you know, I'm in a spot where I've got some good friends who are, you know, uh, 
who believe in the music enough to, to let me in the studio and to really cut me a good deal. And, um, and, and so far, you know, it's working out for everybody. That's good. Which, which song out of all of them, again, you know, similar question to Gravel Church was the easiest one that came to you in terms of life experiences and. Um, no, don't call me baby yeah. is a, is a song that I, I wrote. Um, it was, it was about a dream I had and I don't know why I had the dream. I don't know how it happened. I mean, it might've been some of the hallucinogenics I took in the nineties <laughs> and I was promised flashbacks, but, yeah. um, I had, I had this strange dream that I was in Las Vegas with Alanis Morissette. And uh, she, she dragged me out of a, she dragged me out of a casino, took me out into the desert, made me dig my own grave, and then she shot me. And every time she shot me, she would say, "It's okay, baby. It's okay, baby." And it was just this very vivid dream that I had. And so I woke up, and uh, you know, it, it kind of has this big band feel to it. You know, a little uh, Glenn Miller kind of vibe to it yeah and it was just this really really funny song about you know this crazy woman who was going to be the end of me and uh and um you know why why, why Alanis Morissette though like did you just did you just like watch a music video or something the night before and no I I had watched a documentary um about her and uh I mean I had a wicked thing for her you know, back in the day when she released Jagged Little Pill, I thought she was just great. Um, she seemed to be just such a a, a real person. Um, everything, you know, she was just, you know, what you saw was what you got. And um, yeah, I was, I've always been a big fan of her music. And, uh, um, you know, so uh, I'd watched a documentary about the making of that um, album. And uh, I think that might have, put it in my head um but uh i still don't understand why she was shooting me and you know <laughs> I, I don't i don't understand why she brought me out into the desert to just take me out like that i mean i uh it was it was funny i wonder if there is like a dream thing you know where you can read about dreams and why dreams happen why did i dream about <laughs> being shot <laughs> what does it mean if I dream about being shot or being shot at? Uh, good old GDPR. Uh, being shot or being shot at in a dream can indicate many things depending on your circumstances and the context of the dream. Uh, one interpretation is psychological projection. This is a defense mechanism that people subconsciously use in order to cope with difficult feelings or emotions. <laughs> Do you have difficult feelings or emotions about Alanis Morissette? On a, yes, on a regular basis. <laughs> uh, it involves projecting undesirable feelings onto someone else rather than admitting to or dealing with your feelings. It might be time to talk about things that are on your mind with people you need to talk to. So I think you need to give Alanis Morissette a call. I do. <laughs> oh, wow. Um being shot with a gun usually refers to a fight for survival. How serious the fight may be depends on the type of gun. What kind of gun was it? Was it just like a revolver or just a yeah, hand pistol? It was, yeah, it was just a handgun. It was a, you know, 
That that's oh, it says um, if there are too many shooters in your dream, you might be overwhelmed or overworked in life, making you feel weaker than those around you. You may be. It maybe you feel unappreciated at work or in a relationship. I think you need to have a word with your wife. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that don't you think that things like that is? I always find them interesting. You know, when you look into your subconscious a bit deeper, or you look at how you dream a bit deeper, I yeah. think fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, it's so strange though. Alanis Morissette, it's like. Of all the people. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of other dreams do you have then? <laughs> I'm interested <laughs> now. <laughs> um, I, I really, you know, I don't have those vivid dreams often. It's, uh, um, you know, and the ones I do have are very yellow submarine, you know, uh, you know, talking to whales out on my boat and having like real genuine conversations. Um, okay. Is it, you know, there's, <laughs> there's definitely, uh, you know, it, I don't know how organic the dreams are, you know, or if they are a product of some of the things I did in my younger days, you know, but they're just a delayed reaction. <laughs> Only 20 <Yeah>. years. <laughs> well, we'll come up to 30 years. Mm. Talking to, I think you spend too much time at sea. It, I might, yeah. <laughs> have you have you ever? Are you familiar with the actor Chris Elliott? Uh, no, no, Chris Elliott. Chris Elliott. Um, he he did a comedy called Cabin Boy, and if you get a if you get the opportunity to watch that, it's absolutely hysterical. Um, uh, it's the only movie that David Letterman has ever been in. Uh, he does a cameo, and uh, it is quite funny. And it's all about being at sea. I'm gonna have to give that a watch later on tonight. I've got it. I've got it written down now. So that's tonight's mm. task for me. <laughs> oh, dreams, dreams. Uh, the scariest dreams I have is when I'm being stabbed. You know the ones where you wake up, or you go into a bar, you end up in a fight, and the next thing you know, you're waking up just because somebody's. Yeah, that, I think that's the most dramatic dream I've ever been in. Otherwise, I'd, I'd very rarely dream. I usually just close my eyes and wake up. It's like yeah. I don't feel like I've had sleep. I think it's because I'm overworked, though. I can relate to that. <laughs> Going back to Prince of Poverty, then. Which one has been the one, similar, like, like with Gravel Church, which one's been the one that's really taking you back and every time you hear it, it kind of immediately transports you to that time and place. Um, soul for soul is, uh, I had written that guitar riff and, um, the idea for harpsichord, um, popped into my head, but the, the whole premise of that song was a story about, two lovers who were so super fixed on um, one-upping each other in a competition for affection that um, uh, the, uh, or is what I call it is the um, I told you so game <laughs> um, where 
you will take on lovers who will make you feel like you're the only person in the world to show this other person that, see, I told you, this is how you should be treating me. This is how I, sh you know, this is what I want. Whilst the other one's doing the exact same thing, you know, matching someone soul for soul, um, you know, the, the casualties of war in a relationship where, um, you know, where, where the love that you're having is so toxic that it starts creating, you know, these, these casualties on each side where, you know, I mean, if, uh, you know, almost like, I mean, if you could imagine Napoleon and Hitler going toe to toe, yeah. say, you know, well, I conquered, you know, this much and well, I've conquered <laughs> this much and, uh, you know, um, and, uh, well, I have this kind of death toll. Well, I have this kind of death toll, you know, uh, yeah. and uh, this constant battle for, uh, for one upping the other person. Uh, yeah. It, it was, it was that dark and dreary, you know, uh, underground pub where, you know, these things happened. And, uh, um, you know, every time I listen to it, that's what goes into my head, you know? Uh, yeah. But, uh, I mean, I, I've had a few of those relationships. <laughs> Where would you see yourself? Obviously, you've got a wife now. Do you hopefully, hopefully uh, touring. Um, I hope that these records, um, I hope that they do something. I, I hope that somebody recognizes that they're worthwhile. And, um, you know, I've spoken to my producer, Joe, and he was shocked by the fact that um, you know, I had put a picture up on the internet of uh, 10 songs that he hadn't heard before. And, um, you know, the, uh, I said, Hey, I've, I've got another record to record. And he's was like, you've got to be kidding me. When did you write this? And I'm like, oh, I've been writing it all along. I said, as soon as we started recording this record, I was already working on the next one. And um, so, uh, I, I already titled this one is going to be called a heaven for heretics. And, um, yes, I saw the, um, I saw a tweet that you put out. Yeah. Was it a tweet? Yep. Uh, yes. It was, it was the last photo that you put on. You've already got 10 songs on there. Yeah. 10 songs in there as well. Yeah. What kind of time frame are you looking Is Is that one that you definitely want into, Produces another album, a third album. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I've already booked time. Um, oh wow, already. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, if uh, I, you know, right now, if we, you know, if we can't, if we can't tour and play in front of people, my only shot at getting uh, exposure really is to continue to make music and um, and keep putting out songs in hopes that. I can get some of them published or licensed and um, you know, that's what I'm, that's been my plan is to, until I can tour, I'll just keep putting out records and uh, hopefully yeah. there'll be it's that. Show. Yeah. There'll be a hit in there somewhere. Um, but. Oh, there's hits throughout everything you've done so far. I mean, I can't wait till everybody hears Prince of Poverty. You know, it's, it's an amazing album. Yeah. We, uh, we were very proud of it. You know, uh, um, 
it's it's nice uh i hired all session musicians to come in and play and um you know right now session work is at a premium you know you're uh mm -hmm. these poor guys and girls are starving and um you know when your bread and butter is live music you know live performance um this is what's subsidizing their income and uh it's great that the people I'm playing with right now have said, you know, uh, I know there's a lot of people out there. You could hire anybody you want, but please use me and I'll cut you a deal um, so that I can play on your record because they believe in the music. And that's been really, uh, really awesome. I mean, it's uh, it's nice to hear that. It's nice to have people who want to play your songs. Um, so it's, it's a sad state of affairs, though. You know, the whole... I know everybody is going through the same situation you know, regarding the amount of live shows that we're all going through because there's there's no venues that can be open socially mm -hmm. safe. I mean, yes, they can be open, but they'll only allow, say, 20 or 30 people in there. You know, that's for these venues that can hold like 150, 200 people normally. And it's just right. financially, it's not viable for them to open. And I understand that, but it's just, I, particularly here in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in the US for certain parts, but it, and the government's just not doing enough to help these venues and to help these artists and to help these people who are creating a form of art to keep mm -hmm. surviving. It's it's the same here in the states and in, in Massachusetts, Boston especially. Um, we have lost seventy five percent of our live venues. Um, the live venues that support local independent artists are almost gone. Um, there's almost yeah. nothing left. And what, what really pisses me off is the franchises, these big, you know, you know, franchise restaurants and, and venues are coming in They're They're surviving no problem because they have whatever stocks they're living off of whatever, you know, yeah. they're, they're, they're wealthy companies anyway that diversify. But these these pubs, these mom and pop pubs that have supported the the punk rock scene and the uh, underground, you know, electric, you know, uh, DJ scene, um, you know, the rave scene, they're all gone. Like they're, you know, uh, there's going to be no place for young people to go when this is over. Um, yeah. You know, it's we're going to have to go back to being old school and opening up basements and having, you know parties in, in people's houses and because um, it's uh the pubs are all dead it's it's uh, it's gonna be very difficult but i think it's gonna create a new a new scene for the not the next generation but our current generation you know it's gonna create a new obviously when it went to like the punk rock and the like the grunge scene you know a lot of it was in people's you know it was garage music it was in people's garages or you know, back of car parking lots, you know, on top of trucks. You know, it, it's going to be something like that again, just till things start recuperating. And it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. I genuinely cannot wait to see some live music, you know, at some point this year. I mean, we've got, we've got gigs booked in like May and June and we don't know if they're going to go ahead yet. So obviously that, that's the biggest issue at the moment is the, just the uncertainty of what is going to happen. And hopefully you can get out soon. Yeah, I do. I have a very good friend of mine. Um, his name is 
Craig Higgins, but in London, he goes by the name Clams Baker. Um, he's a front man for a band called Warm Doucher. <laughs> Warm Douche. Yeah. He, uh, they're, they're a, uh, they're, their music is very difficult to describe. Kind of like Velvet Underground meets uh, um, Lou Reed um, with a little ministry in there. Um, okay. But he, he just had, they had a live performance right before the next shutdown in, um, in London. Um, and it was online and it was, it was cool to see them. If you get a chance, check them out. He's actually, a, he's a fishing village buddy of mine here. Um, and he married a girl from London and he, he fits in perfect though. You know, he's, he's, he's become, he's become a true Londoner. He is, uh. He's always had that very dry sense of humor and, uh, you know, he's just very, you know, very funny, very talented. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's a good band to check out. Obviously with obviously friends in London and family from like Scotland and yeah. have you got any plans hopefully in the future to come visit the UK and do a tour? Absolutely. Um, I would love to, I mean, I'm, I am a huge, I, I would say fanatic. I'm, I'm a Beatles fanatic. Um, so get yourself to Liverpool. Yeah. The, the amount of, uh, the amount of, uh, Beatles, uh, paraphernalia that I have is, uh, fills a couple of closets. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I would love to, I, I have, uh, I've been to Scotland several times. Um, uh, you know, big to, uh, Aberdeen and Wigtonshire, um, Glasgow, um, you know, I, I have some cousins over there. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I'd love, I would love to come to London, um, and, uh, and be able to perform. Um, that would, that would be amazing. Um, yeah. You no, know, I have, uh, you know, quite a bit of British ancestry, so it would be kind of cool to check out some of the spots that they came from and, uh, you need to make sure you come up north. I mean, I'm I'm currently in York. I'm about 250 miles away from London. I'm about halfway between London and like Glasgow and Edinburgh. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many beautiful pubs, particularly around the north of England, you know, whether it's in Leeds, Manchester, or even Liverpool. And, yeah. you know, make sure you check. If you do come to the UK, make sure you check out everywhere because there's so much great countryside as well. Um, Manchester uh, has a magazine called The Middle Eight. and yeah. I, uh, I was just in that, um, top 10 records of 2020 in, in their, uh, in their magazine. It was kind of cool. We'll have to, um, I've, I've heard of the magazine. I've just not checked it out yet. I'll yep. have to, um, I've got that written down as well. Whatever I do is if I hear something that's, you know, I'm genuinely going to check out, I always write it down in my uh, notebook. Yep. And you know, once it once it's written down, it's gonna get done. I always make sure of that. That's the first thing I always go to. So yeah, I'm gonna check out that. There's so many magazines as well coming out nowadays. Um, yeah. Like we here, we've got like Maverick magazine, which is predominantly like country music. <coughs> yeah, I uh, hold on a second here. Um, yeah, yeah, this is a uh, my I'm mailing it out to uh, Christian Brown of Maverick magazine in. Elphick's Farm, <laughs> United Kingdom. Yes, 
What is the chance of that, that you've got that just within hand's reach? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> for, those, for those listening, Christine's just grabbed an envelope which contains a CD inside, which she's about to post to the UK, all the way from Boston. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if it makes it. <laughs> so you're, it's coming out on the, was it the 5th of March? March 5th, yeah. Are you excited? Are you genuinely, genuinely excited? I am. Uh, the, uh, the whole concept of this album came out so much cooler than the first one. When we, when we wrote The Gravel Church, it, it had so much country overtone. Um, and, you know, the cover of the album with a cowboy hat and the Texas, you know, kind of Mexican Texarkana you know, uh, style that it had. Yeah. Um, a lot of the rock stations were saying, listen, we're, we're not going to play this. It's too country. And, um, with the Prince of Poverty, you know, I, I got my Doc Martens and, uh, my, uh, it was actually my Montgomery family tartan, uh, kilt yeah. that, that I was wearing. Um, and, uh, you know, wearing the boa hat, it was, uh, you know, the, the country stations are now saying, listen, uh, this is really way too rock. And uh, <laughs> we're kind of, we're trying to find that happy medium where, um, you know, we can fit into both, both of those genres pretty quickly, but. Um, you just you can't know, win though, can you? Yeah. <laughs> it's always, a, it's that, that's the thing that I, a lot of people say, and it's just so frustrating you know, the fact that, you know, you can either be too country or too pop or too rock or too, you know, le- too far to the left or too far to the right and not enough yeah. in the centre. It, it frustrates me. If it's got elements, it's got elements. Just chuck it in there, yeah. see how it does. If people keep requesting it, keep playing it. Right. Yeah. <sighs> frustrates me. I mean, I do love the resonator that's in the picture. The... uh the rock state, the you know, it's funny up here in Massachusetts. The the rock stations have really taken to the album, um, whereas the country stations haven't. Um, but further south, down in the Carolinas and Virginia, the country stations have really taken to it. And, <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's 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 great that we can cross over like that, and uh, um, you know, unfortunately, up here in the in the new England area, um, you know, there's that term bro country, yeah. um, where it's, you know, country pop. Um, yeah. you know, uh, it's just because you take a pop song and have a Southern accent, it suddenly becomes country. Yeah. Um, and so we, we battle against that up here quite a bit. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's become country music's kind of become, more right-wing propaganda of uh, beach blankets and beer, and uh... well, that that that's it. I mean that. I mean, I do I do like the bro country, you know, that kind of aspect. But it, that's the thing that I find frustrating, though. At the same time, is the fact that this this kind of element of country. Why aren't they saying that to them? You know, this is too poppy, or this yeah. is too. You know, it's too far side you know away from country but yet they'll say that about rock music or you know even like the hip-hop or the r&b kind of country styles you know it's yeah it's it's very much suited i know it's about what sells and what stations you know they do their um, marketing on 
But it, it just takes one person just to say, we'll try you out. You know, it's those radio programmers. It's those people that control the playlists. Yeah. They're the ones that are really suffocating the arts at the moment. Well, I think that music is is at a point, it's at a precipice. It's at a it's at a point where it's either going to become so controlled, so manufactured, um, that you know, uh, independent independent artists are going to go the way of the dinosaur, um, or you know, it's going to go back to its original form of the underground, where um, there's still people who listen to music of the street i mean i i'm i like old school rap like run dmc and you know the beastie boys nwa all of those bands yeah you know but rap music seems to have still is still somewhat able to capture the 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 feeling or the or the the voice of the working class to a degree um, whereas country music, which used to be about refusing to conform, questioning authority, um, you know, being independent, being your own man, um, you know, has become this right wing propaganda to keep people stupid. Um, you know, uh, love your guns, love America. Um, it makes absolutely no sense to me. Like I've always, you know, you know. I like Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings and all these guys who are like, screw the government. Um, yeah. No, <laughs> exactly. Know? I mean, well, I, I've got, I've always got to try and remain unbiased in the music industry, but I totally get, I totally get where you're coming from. And, you know, I totally resonate with you. You know, it's frustrating to see particularly the independent artists suffering out and, you know, it almost, you, you go back, you know, what, 15 years ago to MySpace. You know, a lot of the independent artists had to go out on MySpace and kind of push the music to the to the listeners, to the fans. You know, di- you know, direct approach. You know, and then so, in the hopes that you'll get picked up. I mean, there's a indie band here, an indie rocky alternative band here called the Arctic Monkeys, and they started off on MySpace, and they're they're only they're only a small band from Sheffield, but because they were going on MySpace. Their um, the followers they sold out every show and then the shows got bigger and bigger and bigger, and then they got taken on by I think it was Domino Records, which is you know it's it's amazing for an artist to be able to be taken on like that. But right now it just seems that the labels and the people at the top level are fixated on a small number of artists that sell. And yeah. that's the, that's I think for me that's the frustrating thing because you can't see new people you can't see that growth in the genres like you know with what you're doing you're going into that country rock and roll format of the music and you know it'd be great for you to finally just have a we talked about it earlier Taylor Swift moment and explode yeah yeah. That, that, that's ultimately what we want. We want, our, you know, as an artist, I can imagine the key thing is just getting your music heard. And if you're constantly swimming against the tide, then it's difficult. Yeah. Oh, we've, we've, lo- you know, um, Tom Petty is a, a big influence of mine. Um, you know, of course, you know, Prince is a huge influence. Uh, yeah. I'm not 
you might not hear it in my music, but, um, but I, you know, the man was just an amazing songwriter and, um, and guitar player, especially, um, we've lost so many of the Titans of, of the music industry, um, who were able to continuously reinvent and, and express themselves and however they wanted to. And it was marketable because it was that it was, it was, yeah. uh, it was always walking that fine line between art and marketability. And, um, but it was still art. And that's what, those are the artists that I gravitate to. Yeah. Um, as long as it's still a form of art and it's something that you can tell means something to them instead of something that's just created in the studio um, because of an algorithm. And we know that these three notes put together make um, a certain people happy or sad. Um, yeah. These three uh, lines, you know, whether it's honky tonks or dirt right. Rooms, the same. Um, right. I mean, uh, I, I gave an interview for a magazine last month and we were talking and, um, I said, you know, I've never met someone that's made me want to wash my truck. Like I said, you know, I said, you know, there was some song about, you know, meeting a girl and it makes you want to wash your truck. And I'm like, <laughs> I, 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 I don't get it. I'm sorry. I don't get it. I've never wanted to wash my truck. Quite frankly, it smells like fish. It's disgusting. I try to stay away from it. I don't want anybody in it. Um, yeah. And I'm certainly just not going to wash it for someone, um, <laughs> you know? Um, and I'm like, have we really gone that, that far away from like a, a meaningful message? I mean, there's gotta still be some, some modern English out there that people will want to hear other than these foolish stories about truck washing. Oh, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I'm excited for people to hear Prince of Poverty. I really am. (laughs) Because it is, it's going back to traditional songwriting where you are taking from your own experiences. Yeah, it's, it's it's me. It's my life. It's it's what's happened. And, um, it's uh, it's it's organic. It it just those songs were just written. Um, you know, it's there wasn't any effort really put into writing them. They they happen, and uh, um, I those are the artists that I've always gravitated to. Was uh, those artists that didn't have to try? Who just this is this is what happened to me last week and I can make it sound really good with these four chords, you know? Exactly. Yeah. If you keep doing what you're doing and just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, one day you will explode and I cannot wait. I really cannot wait. We've, uh, we've got some, uh, we've got a, we've got some interest. So, I mean, it's just a matter of, uh, keep, we, we just keep plugging away and, um, it's been kind of cool that for this is the first time in my life where soup to nuts, I have had control over everything. I, I had the, you know, the photos done, the, the artwork uh, for the CD. Um, you know, we're all my ideas. And I said, you know, this is how I want it to look. Um, so it's, uh, it's been really cool to not have any outside influence of somebody saying, you know, well, this is how the record's going to appear or sound or it's yeah. just, it's nice. It's been nice uh, to have that kind of 
control that happens in a pandemic. I mean, you know, I don't have the resources to reach out to a graphic designer and say, Hey, I'd like to spend, you know, thousands of dollars on <laughs> you reading my album cover when I can just take a picture with my phone. And That's it. Well, that, I mean, with phones these days, you know, the camera's usually better than what you can buy in a store, you know, like these DSLR cameras. I mean, I've got an iPhone 11 here. Yeah. You know, that's a better camera than most of the other cameras I've ever bought in my life. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it just shows. I mean, it's always the prospect that when you can take full control over everything, it makes it even more so yourself. You know, it makes it yours. It makes it your baby that you get to, you know, nurture and bring to life and show to the world and give to the world. And it gives you that sense of accomplishment when you've done yeah yeah absolutely i mean it's uh it's it is a really wonderful feeling to you know i mean and don't get me wrong i mean it it, there's a lot of uh there's a lot of anxiety a lot of nerves a lot of uh second guessing yourself through the process and then when you finally see that package show up in the mail with a you know a thousand cds in it and and they all look really cool yeah like and they sound great you're like wow like i did that that's yeah better than any accomplishment at sea i mean it's uh it's it's pretty cool that's awesome do you have a website i do um we've kept it very simple it's www.kmwkb.com and from there i mean we have our facebook and um Instagram and all of the social media stuff. Um, you know, that is very simple website to shop. This is one thing that I always love to do on, you know, when I get to chat with fantastic artists such as yourself is check out the merch shop. Oh yeah. Because that's where, you know, it, other than like single sales and because we're not gigging at the moment or doing as many gigs, you're not bringing in as much money in terms of the music side. Mm-hmm. Main for, uh, form of like, mu- you know, money coming in to make future singles or future EPs or future albums is through merch sales. And I love the t-shirt. <laughs> I've not, I've not seen it yet. And <sighs> yeah, we've got hoodies, t-shirts, um, no, all that. Yeah, hoodies, sure. t-shirts, and you've got the Gravel Church CD. Do you do the CD signed, or is it just as is? Um, I well, people have asked me to sign them, so I I sign them too. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, it's, the CD itself is fifteen bucks, which in America is dirt cheap. Here in the UK, that will equate to what twelve pounds ish. And that, that's nothing really for an album. I mean, the songs themselves are amazing songs. Are you looking at putting Prince of Poverty on your merch? Oh, yeah. It's going up. March 5th, it'll be up. Uh... Where can people find... Can people pre-save or pre-order on, like, Spotify or Apple Music or iTunes? Yeah, they can. Yeah, Bandcamp, app, uh, Spotify, uh, everything. I'm sorry. I'm just looking at this T-shirt. I love the um, I love the cowboy hat between the antlers. Yeah, 
such a so quirky. I love it. That's where the uh, the Winter Kill band was a concept uh, that was created during a hunting trip in New England. Um, we had had three or four feet of snow, and um, I've always been an avid whitetail deer hunter and up here, I mean, they get, you know, 200, 250 pound deer. Um, yeah. And I had come across the skeletons of about a dozen deer that had died because the snow was too high. They had nothing to eat. Um, and a friend of mine had said that this has got to be the worst winter kill I've ever seen. And at that moment I was like, wow, you know, that's a cool metaphor for trying to, get through these hard winters, um, you know, the winter kill band, you know, uh, yeah, a, a kind of a cool play on words to, uh, to say, uh, you know, when you're freezing and cold and want a beer and some music to listen to, you can come find us at your local pub. And, uh, that's but, awesome. Uh, but I, uh, I, I am a very big fan of venison and, uh, have traveled extensively to find it. Yeah. You know, it's uh instead of going to your local slaughterhouse to consume an animal that has never tasted freedom or got to spread its uh DNA to the next generation, um you know, I I sit in a tree for 3 months a year waiting for one to walk by so that I can try to shoot it with shoot it with my bow. Um Oh, you're a bow you're a bow hunter. Yeah, yeah, I don't use. I've never used a rifle. It uh, just doesn't seem natural. It seems yeah. unfair. Um, yeah, but, I mean, there's a lot of skill involved with quite a bit. You know, first skill is being able to survive. You know, eight hours in a tree with ten below zero degree weather, um, and then still trying to shoot straight when you're shaking cold. Um, but uh, the adrenaline that you get when that massive stag walks by and you put an arrow through its heart is absolutely thrilling. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the work afterwards is uh, it's very um, rewarding too to process the animal and make your sausages and your steaks and your stew. And yeah. And it gets you through the winter with, uh, you know, no GMOs, no, you know, no steroids in it. It's, uh, it's not being pumped with water and salt and, yeah fresh yeah. meat yeah exactly i mean that, that that's always the case you know when you hear people talking about becoming vegetarian and you know or would you kill this animal you know there's a lot of people out there that will say yes you know i, I do i do go for my own meat and you know obviously you get to hunt hunting's done throughout certain periods of, you know it's, it's seasons yeah and you know that, that that's there to keep you know certain stocks growing and you know i totally understand the whole logic behind hunting you know i'm not against the, you know there may be people that are that listen to this but you know it, it's a case of personal preference and the way we're all brought up well i i talk to people here in new england about it who are opposed to hunting and i tell them i said are you going to are you going to donate 20 percent of your salary to keep the conservation lands and to um and to keep the you know the you know, the, the available land from being purchased by corporations. Um, and they say, well, no, of course not. And I'm like, well, the licenses that we buy in order to hunt, 90% of that money goes towards preserving that land and keeping it in the public trust yeah. so that it's not purchased by 
businesses who are going to develop it and destroy the habitat. And, yeah. you know, so, um, you know, we are really, um, you know, where we are the, uh, brother's keeper of, um, public land and of, of the, the forest. So that's it. I yeah. mean, do you get, do you skin and, you know, harvest the meat yourself? I, I do. Um, I mean, uh, hold on. I mean, I've got these guys, as you can tell, I, um, I, I save everything that I, you know, oh, wow. everything, that I, everything that I shoot, um, is, uh, I, I skin, I use quite a bit of it. I'd say 90, 90% of the animal is used. Yeah. So it's, uh, no, that's brilliant. That's, you know, that, that that's always the thing as well is those who shoot to kill and don't take that meat. I mean, yes, if you leave it in the wild, there's other animals that get to enjoy yeah. the uh, right. the kill. But yeah, I, I mean, how many, what's the most points that you've got, you know, pointer? Uh, 12. You've got a 12 pointer. Oh, yeah. wow. That's not, ba- that's not bad. At all? No, no, no. That was a that was up in the mountains too. That was a that was a good weekend. Yeah, <laughs> that's brilliant. <coughs> I'm gonna have to get myself up to Boston at some point. <laughs> all right. So, where can people find you on social media? You can find us on Facebook. Uh, we have the Christian Montgomery and the Winter Kill Band page. You can find us on Instagram. Um, we're on Twitter. We are, uh, we're on Reddit. Um, those are, those are pretty much it. And where can, how do people search for, um, Prince of Poverty? You know, how can they pre-save or pre-purchase? Um, you can pre-order on bandcamp.com. Um, you can pre-order on our website, um, iTunes, um, Spotify, Amazon, we're on all the platforms, so you can you can find it there. That's awesome. It's, it's been great talking to you. I've got one more question for you. Yeah. And just to finish it off, do you eat pizza? I do. Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? No. No. No, <laughs> no, no pineapple. The majority of people from, like, Chicago and Boston and New York and those kind of areas always say no. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, here in the UK, um, we don't have like a designated like area of, you know, like f- culinary food. I mean, we have fish and chips, yes, but we don't have like you know, yes or no to pineapple and pizza. I mean, I love pineapple and pizza, but there's a lot of people here that don't like it as well. What is it about? What kind of pizzas do you like? Well, we have in Boston, we have the famous North End, the Italian uh, part of the city. Yeah, and the food is all authentic. Um, and uh, we've got the deep dish pizzas, um, those Chicago style. Um, and uh, I, I prefer the more traditional, you know, Italian food. Uh, if you're going to have pizza, um, you got to go to the North End. I mean, that's the place to get it. Yeah. I mean, I, there used to be a program on the, um, I think it was the Travel Channel or the Food Channel or something um, with Adam Richman, uh, Man Versus Food. And he used he, he's from Boston, and he used to go to this pizza place. And normally with pizza, you have your 
your dough and then you have like a tomato sauce and you have your cheese. But there's one place that does it the opposite way around. It's almost like a square pizza and they've got the dough and then they put the cheese and then the tomato sauce. So the cheese like melts with the bread and then yeah. you've got like nice sauce mm. on top. So it's not like mixed around. It's just this really saucy pizza. It looks really good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm really wanting pizza now. <laughs> Thank you, Christine, for coming on. It's been absolutely amazing talking to you. Finally. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate the support. So, yes, everybody, make sure you pre-save, pre-order Prince of Poverty now. You won't regret it. And check out Gravel Church as well. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you all next time. Bye for now. That was the Country Chat Podcast. Join Dom next time for exclusive interviews, reviews and general chit-chats on all things country music.